Welcome to the eighth episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics, but the joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who and, in fact, must use them. I'll let you in on all the rules, but first, let's welcome my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number eight. It's Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine family of podcasts. And if you've been following along with the comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, he's the author of his own crazy continuity uh, springing out of who's editing, springing out of the first episode, really, and then continuing on from there. Frank, okay, you got to tell us a little bit about this madness. I'm actually going to try to isolate that from this. I wanted to make sure that this uh, episode was going to be new reader or new listener friendly. But basically, <laughs> you have your rules for this show, and I started down that road and then being the mad person that I am, I ended up kind of making my own game with its own particular rules. And yeah, basically as long as you're continuing to do this, I'll continue to haunt your comment section with my bizarro musings. Uh, and I've got the whole two years in mind. I've got a whole overarching story going on there. I, I, I hate fan fiction. So it's weird for me to essentially <laughs> produce fan fiction. So I'm doing everything possible to make it as unfanfic as possible while still clearly being fanfic. Right. And if people are uh, fans of those posts, you're also doing podcast annotations on Rolled Spine. I enjoy like seeing the behind the scenes of it. That, that's the funny part because I, I listened to Paul Hicks's episode and I'm basically the anti-Paul Hicks where I had <laughs> already been doing all this reading and, and researching for the comments, which is already madness. And then you wanted me to come on an episode earlier than I was expecting. I, I kind of felt like it was going to happen, but it happened faster than I thought. And of course, it was a Flash episode because you're a sadist. People don't know this. And so I had to kind of drop everything and do research, 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 writing, writing, writing. I actually had to set the comments project off to the side. And I was literally still working on this five minutes before uh, you sent me a text saying you're ready to go. So it won't in any way be better than Paul's, but it will definitely be more OCD. So, <laughs> and, and literally I started a podcast as sort of a production di diary, just, you know, because of this show. So that's how deep into this I am. Buckle in folks. I apologize. It's going to be madness, but different madness than in the comments. You're really doing like a separate from, your evolving line in the comments. There was one title in particular where I had to consciously make sure I didn't dip into that material. I really wanted this to be entry level and it would have fit well. And I think maybe that particular title suffers a little bit for it, but you know, I do the best I can. They can't all be winners. The, most of these titles are going to end up getting canceled inside of six issues anyway. <laughs> well, it is DC. So what were the challenges here? Because I, I'm looking at the issue. This is the issue with, you know, the main stars of the Flash and Firestorm. So there, there's a lot of fire characters or characters with fire in their names, which is usually a problem for creating uh, this. But I also feel also that did we draw the long straw as opposed to the short straw with the number of teams in this because usually myself and my guests have to like force a team book on there because there's no team there's no hero team in the issue but this one has loads yeah and that was very handy I, I was fearful because the majority of the characters in this book i don't have a real personal connection to but it ended up being beneficial because it could be more pure research and trying to figure out how to make these properties work for a broader audience, including myself, since I'm not the intended audience for most of these properties. So it, it, for mm. me, I think I, I lucked out 
frankly. There are, I, there's no zoo crew that I have to try to accommodate, no Atari force. And what's actually really nice, too, is because I've got the comments thing going, these characters don't really relate to any of the stuff I was already doing. So to some extent, it was like a, a breath of fresh air to, to address characters so far outside of my own general experiences. All right. Well, one more time. Here are the rules each episode of Who's Editing will go by. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero, character, or team featured. We can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to, and we usually do, but we can only name a single villain from the issue to receive that honor. Imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other, so we can reboot characters or use any continuities version. It's really up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. Note that we are each pitching our own ideas, so we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. And listeners, you decide which books you actually want to read, and we'll do the same. We'll, we'll, we just have enough money to buy one title from the other person's uh, line of books, and we'll reveal which comics we're actually buying at the end of the show. So tell me, Frank, did you have a strategy since you're not doing, you know, you're not crossing over with Crisis on the Barren Earth, B-A-R-O-N? Did you have a, a specific strategy? You know, one of the nice things about that is the continuity, because when you do it from month after month, you just start feeding into stuff. You, you figure out where a character is going to fit into what you're already doing, which is nice. This was entirely a fresh start. So I know it's a little far fetched, but please give me just a little bit of leeway on this. OK, so Warner Brothers, the parent company of DC Comics, has a merger with another big corporation. It could be any one of them, AOL, AT&T, whatever. In this purely hypothetical merger, there's bound to be some shakeups, like, say, one of DC's publishers stepping down without any notice, or DC pulls out of a decades-long exclusive distribution arrangement. Now, I know I'm going really far out with this, but let's pretend that a global pandemic suddenly hits, which is derivative of no man's land, but it's been nearly 20 years. Give me a break here. In the midst of this pandemic, AT&T is so heartless and blinded by self-interest that they engage in enormous layoffs, like thousands of people across all divisions. But comics are hit especially hard. People who've been there for decades get the axe, and their workload falls squarely on the few who remain. These people are dispirited, disillusioned, and probably don't know if their careers are about to go under. They're increasingly dependent on assistant editors and unpaid interns, right? So I'm not an actual editor in this scenario, but I'm making like 30k a year to ghost edit because whoever I'm working under has crawled into a bottle waiting for the end of it all. All of the regular DC books are still coming out. The Justice League are also alive. I don't have the authority to pay Alan Moore to finally go to full script on Twilight of the Superheroes for Alex Ross to paint. I can't greenlight any mega crossovers, but I can coordinate with other assistant editors and exert influence over projects that have already been greenlit. And that, and these particular characters are the ones that you are ghost editing in this completely mad, it's like a Mad Max scenario you painted there. <laughs> in a similar way, uh, I feel like a lot of my, the books I designed are political, and I feel like it's also a sign of the times. Uh, so, well, you'll just have to bear with... No, I'm not speaking to you because I think we reach in terms of politics, but... Uh, uh, listeners out there are going to have to bear some of my Canadian socialist politics here. It's going to be a rough night, folks, because I'm very <laughs> political with this one, too. I, I wasn't going to tip my hand this early, but, oh, boy, you guys are in for it. Well, I mean, this is the issue with Freedom Fighters mm -hmm. and Force of July. I mean, you know, in some way, we didn't have a choice. But I didn't really have 
a strategy myself. There's no overarching thing. Not really. Some books do speak to one another, but it's kind of a coincidence because of the material that was there. And uh, so everything is rebooted with issue eight of Who's Who. We have to include a minimum of 16 books in our line and a maximum of 17 Frank, I'm going to hand it off to you first. We'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, and we'll keep our bonus villain series, if we have one, for the end. And you did mention no Zoo Crew, no, you know, stuff, but you still got an Omega Man. Mm -hmm. It's Felicity, and that's where we start. Yeah, this is the first title I'm helping to prep for launch. It's simply titled Felicity. We open with Felicity's high school graduation. Her crush, Ty Gore, signs her yearbook. Like a schoolgirl, she bypasses Stanford and follows him to MIT instead. Felicity becomes a computer genius who uses her hacker skills to aid a local vigilante. Their romance in the series as a whole derails when she gets a really severe haircut that the fans don't enjoy. No? Okay, how about this? Felicity and the Broken City. It's written by Tina Horn of Image Comics' Safe Sex, drawn by Laura Braga of DC Comics' Bob and Shells and Top Cow's Witchblade. Uh, the pitch is, it's Omaha the Cat Dancer on Deep Space Nine as Casablanca. Following her acrimonious divorce from the physically and emotionally abusive Tigor, Felicity escapes the endlessly embattled Vega Sector and sets off for the furthest edge of frontier space. There she finds Haven, peopled by a diverse collective of alien war refugees reminiscent of her own Omega Men. Haven now rests on a harsh, undesirable world far beyond the reach of authorities like the Green Lantern Corps. As such, it's a perfect neutral ground for both legitimate diplomacy and illicit affairs. What Haven can't eke out of the planet itself, it more than makes up for in tourism, trade, and vice. Felicity returns to her old life of stripping with a side of prostitution, which brings her into peripheral contact with the extraterrestrial intrigues playing out around her. However, the focus of the series is on the Havenites that are Felicity's constant friends, lovers, and enemies. For instance, Garguax takes on the Peter Lorre role as an information broker who is detested by most, but especially Felicity. Though Felicity benefits from his bankroll, she is sickened by his unwanted touch and quietly foils his chances of weaseling his way back into the World Conqueror's Club. Where series like Hardcore Station and Legion focused on the law-prosecuting criminals, Felicity is more about the personal drama of the lowlies getting by amidst corruption and space opera. Generally speaking, it's a positive story about sex work, smuggled into a science fantasy setting, less Guardians of the Galaxy, and more like the Helix imprint. That, the Helix imprint is exactly what I was thinking when I was imagining it visually. So, <laughs> good work. Mine is similar but completely different. <laughs> I'm asking the question because I want to get rid of the Omega Men stuff, so it's not in space. But what are furries like in the DC universe, is the question. Mm. It's a world that has Gorilla City in it, characters like the shark and the crocodile men and whatever. So I, I guess, well, those are scalies, I guess. But <laughs> I I'll, honestly, I've never heard that term before. That's news to me. If you don't have fur, can you be a furry? Mm. But Man Bat might be a better example. You know, there are wannabes that dress up as animals, and then there's the real thing. So I propose an underground animal person community some members of which cater to certain tastes in the more human population. The Animal Quarter or Beast Town, whatever. It's in some city out there, probably Gotham, because it's full of animal-themed heroes and villains. And Felicity is an exotic dancer working out of a club. I'm going to call the Cat of Nine Tails or something like that. So this is a hybrid of crime comics, romance comics, funny animal comics, by way of manga, 
And while she's everyone's best friend kind of thing, the center of things, the series co-stars all the intelligent animals of the DCU from Detective Chimp to Grodd to Mr. Mind with guest spots for Animal Man or Aquaman and Hawkman, you know, the guys that talk to the animals would be in there, maybe not always trusted by the by the community. But I'm making it as a strange... I don't know if you've ever seen the comic Bug House. Mm, no. It's, uh, it's, it's about the jazz scene, but all the characters are bugs. It's an indie title. It's older. I mean, it's not going on right now. That kind of feeling where everything is sort of topsy-turvy. In this case, animal-based. Next up is Feral Lad. And uh, a few years back, uh, I ran a superhero role-playing campaign set in the 29th century DC Universe... Uh, where players were invited to create characters that were either long-lived heroes that you knew, legacy heroes uh, 800 years down the line, or precursors to the Legion of Superheroes. And one of my players chose to create a precursor to Pharaoh Lad called Pharaoh Man. And that's my series. It's not in the 29th century or anything. It's today. But uh, this Andrew Nolan is a steelworker in an industrial city. I guess it needs a DC name like Foundry City or something. But it's really a fictionalized Detroit. And this character's metagene is triggered when he falls into a vat of liquid metal. He survives by instinctively turning into iron, but has time to melt a little before he can get out of it. So he's disfigured. And I play him as a, a hero of the people, patrolling his poor neighborhood or else going after uh, the bosses that keep steel mills and factories dangerous or, or toxic work environments. I also need him to be a bit more clever with his powers. So, you know, it's, it's kind of boring when, if he's just like super strong. So he can turn into a magnet by channeling electricity through himself, that kind of thing. He's got a blue collar supporting cast to protect, but they care about him too. And, you know, seeing as he's facing problems like depression uh, since he was disfigured. Like in the comics, it's usually played as teenage angst, that stuff. But this is an adult and it's going to be more naturalistic. It's, it's going to speak more to those issues. Uh, and all things considered, I guess this is a pretty grim, or at least a gritty series. So no Legion stuff for me. What about you? That, that seems to be kind of a theme with the podcast. We all want to take the Legion out of the 30th century and bring them into the present. And I'm no different. Uh, my title is The Iron Age. It's written by Mark Way, drawn by Barry Kitson, and the pitch is... LSA year negative 1000. In the late 30th century, a young man named Andrew Nolan is forced to hide his disfigured face behind a metal mask. Thanks to his mutant ability to turn his body into living animated iron, he is swiftly accepted into the Legion of Superheroes during an open tryout. Andrew is validated by being the first African-American Legionnaire, as he is inducted alongside Princess Projectra, Nemesis Kid, and Karate Kid. In short order, Nemesis Kid is found to be a treasonous mole and escapes justice when he's discovered. In quick succession, the team is attacked by a high caliber of menace in the forms of Dr. Regulus, Prince Evillo, and his Devil's Dozen. Superboy and Supergirl were even forced to abandon the Legion temporarily due to a kryptonite cloud, so the team is understandably on edge. When a giant gaseous entity called a Sun Eater threatens to devour the energy source of our solar system, the Legion must join forces with the worst villains of the age, dubbed the Fatal Five, in a desperate bid to stop this menace. The Legion's powers are supercharged by anti-energy from the antimatter universe through a device created by the cyborg Therok. But the team's efforts are still thwarted by the Sun Eater. Ultimately, a last-ditch plan is concocted to destroy the Sun Eater with an Absorbatron bomb, but it will take a hero to drive the bomb into the Sun Eater. Feralad had previously come the closest to reaching the heart of the Sun Eater, and with Superboy weakened by Red Sun Energy, Andrew feels that he's the best candidate. 
Unfortunately, Superboy has already volunteered, and Ferrolad has the momentary impulse to strike Kal-El and make off with the bomb. However, Andrew hesitates for a picosecond at the thought of attacking the very inspiration of the Legion, more than enough time for Superboy to detect the threat and neutralize Ferrolad. Superboy then carries the bomb as he originally intended, it detonates, and the Sun Eater's release of yellow sun energy in its death throes merely reinvigorates the boy of still. Still shaken by Nemesis Kid's treason and questioning Ferrolad's judgment, Andrew is removed from the team. While his brief stint in the Legion opens doors for Andrew, he still struggles with the shame of being cast out. His twin brother Douglas takes it the hardest, though, as he fixates on Superboy's having ruined Andrew's greatest opportunity. Douglas perceives Superboy as having gained a heightened arrogance after his brush with the Sun Eater, and fears that the Boy of Steel will eventually indulge in authoritarian leanings. Douglas struggles with severe emotional problems, and years later, his resentments are exploited by Therok and the Fatal Five. Douglas's body is exposed to anti-energy, and as Ingot, he attacks the Time Institute. Andrew, fearing for his brother's safety and sanity, confronts Ingot and the Fatal Five. The former Pharaoh lad learns of Ingot's intent to travel through time to right the supposed injustice done him during the confrontation with the Sun Eater. As Andrew struggles to stop his brother, both are thrown through the time stream, back to the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Ferrolad is soon recruited by Harbinger to face the multiversal threat posed by the Anti-Monitor, and this puts him in proximity to the adult Superman. Kal-El recognizes Andrew from his youth and heeds his warning about Ingot's dangerous plan. However, Superman is also inspired by his memories of defeating the Sun Eater and works with Alexander Luthor to recreate Therok's anti-energy device. Pharaoh and Superman are once again exposed to anti-energy, but this time are rendered violently ill and bereft of powers. While they convalesce, Pariah and Superman of Earth-2 lead an assault on the antimatter universe. With both suffering from paranoid delusions, Andrew reveals that Supergirl is fated to die, and kal attempts a mad scramble to save her. This time, Andrew doesn't hesitate in striking this depowered Superman, fearful that he might alter the entire time stream. In the end, though, supercharged heroes, including Supergirl, were able to destroy the Anti-Monitor, thus averting any further crisis on the infinite Earths. The conflict was ended without the further need of Kal-El or Andrew. Douglas Nolan is eventually located, having already expended his three days of supercharged power. Andrew admits to having his perception of Superman colored by his brother's obsession with the Boy of Steel, but now recognizes that no single event could alter the Man of Steel's innate goodness. Superman agrees to allow Andrew and Douglas to remain in the 20th century to avoid their continued judgment a thousand years in the future. In a series that continuously threatens the darkest timeline twist, this is the anti-swerve. The series is actually about Ferrolad getting a fresh start to realize himself as a hero while helping his neurodiverse brother navigate a relatively normal life in a positively altered post-1986 timeline. Mark Wade finally gets to ride an ongoing pre-crisis deboot in his own optimistic, isolated continuum. A deboot, I like that. Now the challenges begin. We start with the fire heroes. There are plenty of these. What are you doing with Firebrand? One, the original. You get two Firebrand books, so you do what you want, but what is that first one? I don't know how I managed to stumble into all the quality characters because I was sort of uh, Ryan's guy for Secret Origins as well. Uh, oh. My take on this particular quality character is The Flaming Firebrand, co-written by Robert Rohde of Codename Knockout and Mark Andreco of Manhunter. The art is by Steven Sadowski. The pitch is my favorite year in the Velvet Goldmine. It's the early 70s, and crime reporter turned novelist John Law is at the nadir of his career. He'd spent some months in 1942 acting as a superhero dubbed the Tarantula to gather material and finally published his, his memoir, Altered Egos, The Mystery Men of World War II in the 1960s. That decision had thoroughly burned all his bridges in the costume community, and his writing in the first place demonstrates his lack of a remarkable writing career. 
desperate for cash, Law tries to put together a Hollywood Babylon-style trashy tabloid affair. But in the free-for-all 70s, there simply isn't much of a market for old-timey pearl clutching. Plus, frankly, Law lacks the style, candor, and libido. However, one of his would-be scandals offers him a lead on another opportunity. There is an interest from publishers for texts on homosexuality, as that community tries to recollect its long-suppressed history. The Tarantula had served with the second female firebrand during his brief time with the All-Star Squadron. Danette Riley had long told the tall tale of discovering her brother's secret life as a vigilante after he'd been rendered a vegetable while acting heroically as a Navy ensign during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. John Law could smell the stink off that con job a mile away, as there's an historically severe shortage of wealthy playboys enlisting in the military, especially prior to World War II. More likely, a red bandana mask wasn't the only secret life Firebrand was concealing. A quick search of service records revealed that Rod Riley's valet, Slugger Dunn, had been drafted in 1942, but was given a blue ticket before the end of the war. Slugger Dunn was located on Skid Row, having never recovered from his dishonorable discharge, and was perfectly willing to spill his guts about his time as Firebrand's servant, trainer, and partner in a variety of nighttime escapades. John Law next locates Rod Riley himself, but instead of a confrontation, is happily greeted by the now widely confirmed Bachelor. Having heard all of Danette's All-Star Squadron takes a hundred times over, and with decades of chafing under her and society's homophobia, Rod insists that the former Tarantula would be perfect as his biographer. Rod is eager to be lionized as the first queer superhero to come out, but also knows what he and his friends had buried in hard bodies that had known the caress of a cape or a transparent pink blouse. John suffers through one handsy night with aging queens after another, while wrestling with his own deep-seated prejudices, for the good of the book. The Flaming Firebrand is a serial comic look at gay history with an emphasis on the closeted heroes that kept Frederick Wortham guessing, as well as John Law's education about the post-Stonewall experience. I like it. Mine's not mine's not gay, but <laughs> Slugger Dunn's in it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm divorcing the two firebrands. Uh, I wanted to have Danette Riley as the firebrand, but Rod who is not a Riley, uh, let's call him Rod Crandall, after one of his creators. Rod was technically first, except no one's ever heard of him. So it's not Danette's fault when she unknowingly adopts uh, his nom de guerre. He was maybe Firebrand like two weeks ahead of her, and he's really pissed that she's done that. This is a comedy series, but like yours, uh, it's actually called Slugger and the Firebrand, and the POV character is actually Slugger Dunn, the one guy who knows Rod's true identity and who suffers through this friendship. He's Rod's old Navy buddy. This is still contemporary. It's not golden age. Uh, and he's trying to run a boxing academy and so forth. So he doesn't really have time for Rod's shenanigans, but out of loyalty, he humors him, even though it's clear a guy in a see-through blouse with minimal fighting ability and few resources is not going to be hired by the Freedom Fighters or whatever other team. You know, the guy's just going to keep grumbling about stolen headlines and being misquoted in the press. So I want this to be the the wannabe hero who maybe believes in his own legend a little more than anyone else does. But he can't get out of the local scene and uh, spends more time griping about it, you know, drinking with his friend. And it's that kind of series. Let's talk about the second Firebrand, because Danette is the real Firebrand for me. And like Rod's series, it takes place in the contemporary era. And because there are too many fire-related characters in the line, she's not a flame-on type hero. I'm going with the other definition of Firebrand. As a person with a penchant for militancy in speech and or action. That's the other definition. In other words, Danette is an activist, 
both in her everyday life and as a superhero. And she's definitely a hothead. She's Antifa. She's an echo warrior. Whatever the cause, she, she's kind of a, like a modern-day Zorro, using her wits and your physical ability to get the job done, even if it's sometimes reckless. And I think the readers and, and the supporting cast inside the book may be forced to ask sometimes if she's gone too far. Think of her as a super planner like Batman. She has a contingency plan and you know side schemes unfolding while she showboats in a costume. Daredevil is what happens when Matt Murdock can't get justice through the normal channels. Firebrand is what you get when Danette can't get social justice through normal activism, which, from experience, happens a lot. So, so this is maybe my first political book. We've kind of paralleled one another for a lot of this, and uh, that's not going to stop just yet. Okay. Uh, but I, I do have my opportunity to finally force my first super team onto the scene. My book is called The Conflict Engine. It's written by Vita Ayala of Valiant's Livewire and Marvel's Morbius drawn by Robbie Rodriguez of Spider-Gwen and Vertigo's FBP, Federal Bureau of uh, Physics, if I recall correctly. Uh, the pitch is, it's the JLAOC. Janet Falls' Indonesian immigrant grandfather was so convinced of the need for assimilation that he went to work for the CIA. His son and grandson did the same, but Janet rejected her family's path to focus on healing as an EMT. Unfortunately, after surviving Blackest Night, Forever Evil, and two invasions from Apocalypse as a first responder, she was killed during Dark Knight's Metal. Her father refused to accept this and turned her remains over to Civil Solutions, a futurist arms developer. As she would tell it, I was R&D. They tempered my skin like flint and gave me a new heart. Driven by this mechanical conflict engine, the modern firebrand has to use her pyrokinesis, super strength, and durability to engage in aggression. She has to fight at least once every 24 hours or she will die since wow. her replacement heart is literally fueled by the kinetic energy combat produces. This was an idea by Steve Orlando, by the way. I just want to make sure that I'm not taking undue credit. Uh, the conflict engine brought her into the company of Colin Mimi, an artist blinded by a one-time vision of the World Forge. Imbued with the fires of creation, this new incarnation of Neon the Unknown can manipulate matter or energy, including his physical form as well as teleport. The pair were brought to the attention of the Council of Immortals, who held them accountable for the deaths of the ancient Atlantean Ascendant and the Viking Judge. However, the Council had bigger problems when the siege, the mammoth but invisible base of the Infinite Woman, was suddenly revealed hovering over New York. In the widespread panic that followed, President Trump deployed uh, any federal authorities, ICE agents, prison guards, or even mercenaries to get scrounged up to flood the tri-state area. In a region just beginning to recover from the peak of COVID-19, their presence was not welcome, especially when they declared no protest peaceful enough to the tune of pepper spray, taser shields, and rubber bullets that killed and permanently blinded innocent people. When these forces would dare to dip into Jersey, it was all the excuse Firebrand needed, since people like these just fuel her fire. But Janet wasn't alone, and Tanya Spears of Star Industries began quietly posting bail for protesters. Inspired by the movement in Coral City and her desire to serve the common good, Janet Falls joined the Earth One Power Girl in putting together a metahuman Antifa group to send off these modern brown shirts. Natasha Iron suggests Firebrand moved from Mammoth City to Jersey City to get closer to the action, while Cassandra Kane somehow drifted in their orbit. Noted liberal loudmouth Oliver Queen lent additional support, including bringing his former JLA teammate, Cisco Ramon, into the Loose Collective. Things escalate when the Green Lantern Simon Baz arrives, alerted by his prophetic emerald sight that the conflict engine will be essential against the catastrophe facing the United States in the near future. 
Unfortunately, the criminal quartet, the gang, was tasked by the council with acquiring the conflict engine and firebrand along with it. Janet's father has also alerted the CIA about his MIA daughter. And the lame duck Trump administration sees opportunity in both the technological conflict engine and stoking fears against the metahuman anti-fascists associated with it. Haunted by his childhood in the shadow of 9-11, Green Lantern Marshall's Green Arrow, Power Girl, Vibe, Orphan, Neon the Unknown, Steel, and Tracy 13 against another national tragedy. These disparate heroes are bonded together in resistance and deliberate their conflict engine figuratively and literally. So you name drop Neon the Unknown. Eyes on your sheet. <laughs> I am going to name drop Neon later. <laughs> what are the chances? It's not my fault. That a lot of this came from Steve Orlando's The Unexpected. So I, I credit to him for that one. Okay. Well, I don't think I've even read that. So it is a coincidence. Let's stick to the fire characters, but this one is not supposed to be, you know, flame on or anything. Firehair, the Western character. What did you do there? I definitely did not go Western. Okay. Um, I'm not a fan of performative appropriation of othering. Problematic, yes. Yeah, yeah. infringed jackets, the whole dream catchers thing. And so being that it was a Western, and I've pointedly not done a lot of period material in the, the comments game that I'm playing, I thought, well, maybe this would be a good place to explore the Western. And so I looked at some of the books, and on the cover of the guy's debut appearance, it says civilized or savage and i'm like nope nope no redheaded indian guys in 1969 for me so taking the piss the book is going to be called the legend of fire crotch it's written by fred van linty <laughs> of incredible hercules and archer and armstrong it's drawn by scott godlewski of young justice and images copperhead vark is a sullen 19 year old who doesn't fit in anywhere with his untamed ginger mane badly in need of conditioner, and freckles so abundant that he gets pulled over routinely for minor traffic violations, Vark is a pretty angry guy let loose on the world. He's no hit with the ladies either, hence his nickname. The one time he got lucky, the girl told all her friends that his crotch looked like an inflamed aardvark, and the name stuck after her Instagram post went viral, as frankly did most of their crotches, but that didn't help Vark's narrative any. Following a novel DNA test, Vark becomes inordinately concerned about his dual, if diluted, Norwegian Blackfoot ancestry. As an amateur musician, Vark is trying to get his death metal band off the ground, capitalizing on his small and rather pathetic infamy by performing as Firecrotch. He begins mixing in more Native American affectations, but meets resistance with his bandmates. What they don't know is that he has a secret second SoundCloud account for his experiments with K-pop dubstep. By merging all of his musical influences onto one track, he inadvertently triggers Ragnarok, specifically exploding the eardrums and eyeballs of Thor, killing the ancient god instantly. Vark and the members of Firecrotch are then conscripted into the Norse Battle of the End Times, expected to employ their Mord music, or murder music, in final battle with the Midgard Serpent. It is only then that Na'pi appears, calling on Vark to reclaim his Blackfoot heritage. Na'pi explains that the actual Norse gods are already long dead, and the ones he faces now are just shadow creatures created by the warped faith of neo-Nazis. Napi urges Firecrotch to destroy these hateful creatures through his shamanic death chants. However, it turns out Firecrotch is now a social media sensation among white supremacist channels. Once again, Vark is torn between avenging the genocide of a peaceful native people or a suddenly lucrative Patreon subscriber base of low-key skinheads and a shot at crossover fame. Social justice or duet with David Allen Cole and a Soul Cycle endorsement deal. As ever, the burden of fire crotch is greater than that of any other man who has ever walked this lonely earth. <laughs> I really like that. 
Mine is also apocalyptic. Like this character was probably, you know, inspired by movies like The Searchers that tap into the the, the historical notion that native tribes practiced uh, kidnapping their enemies' children and raised them as their own. Uh, and the way it's described in the entry, it's really a sort of white messiah story because he's a chosen one. And you've basically got a white character in a native story. So I agree. That's got to go. I'm going a bit vertigo on this one to change the angle. As before, he's a ginger boy taken and adopted by Grey Cloud of the Blackfoot Nation. And as before, a shaman has a vision of a Blackfoot who looks like no other playing an important role. But instead of couching it in messianic terms, it's a warning about a curse. In fact, the gods are really angry at Grey Cloud's refusal to listen to the shaman. And when he comes of age, uh, fire, fire hair that is, they start sending spirits and monsters to kill the kid. He runs to White Man's World eventually, where he's also shunned. And the series makes literal the idea that he is of two worlds belonging to neither. He's a middle point, an intersection, uh, a gateway between the two worlds, through which an Old West apocalypse will come. When he's in White Man's World, native spirits cause problems. When he's in the lands of his you know, adopted people, pollution and pestilence seem to follow him. So he's fated to destroy one world or the other, so he can't stop moving. It's sort of a Fugitive Hulk-type series with epic stakes. So I played it more seriously, but I also undid the, the White Messiah bullshit. <laughs> I was trying not to curse, but if you're going to curse, this is an excellent time to do so. <laughs> Next up is Firehawk. Firehawk is going to be my premier Flame On hero series. I don't know if anyone's ever made anything of Lorraine Riley being a Riley, just like Firebrand. Has that ever been a thing? I don't think so. No, but I'm going to pull a Roy Thomas on this one. The two Rileys, like Danette and, um, and Lorraine, are sisters. So that means they're both daughters of a U.S. senator. Puts Danette in the rebellious role and may explain why she you know, where she gets some of her resources in her crusades. Lorraine, on the other hand, is uh, the so-called good daughter. She's daddy's favorite, the elder sibling who is following in her father's footsteps. So in her personal life, she's a congresswoman's intern, a job she totally got thanks to nepotism, but she's actually good at it, except where being Firehawk interferes with her duties, of course. Her origin can stay with Tokamak kidnapping the senator's daughter and everything, but Firestorm's not in it. Eventually, you can make a big deal out of having them meet. But initially, she's Washington, D.C.'s resident superhero, and her stories connect to a shadow government trying to create super soldiers. And we'll see in a couple of entries near the back of the book, really, you know, what that's about. So some failed experiments, super soldier experiments leak into her villain pool even as she investigates the program from inside the corridors of power. She's shedding a bright light on the shadows, you might say. This is another political book, but it's more of a thriller. What about you? I'm glad I hit the mute button because I was laughing through at least half of that. <laughs> uh, I thought that this was going to be the one where we're finally going to diverge, and then you just like turned right into my skit. So, Firehawk the Nuclear Woman, written by G. Wilson Willow of Miss Marvel and Vertigo's Air, 
drawn by Cliff Richards of the OMAC Project and Just League Odyssey. The pitch is Zero Dark New 52. When Lorraine Riley won back her deceased father's congressional seat from the Republican that had replaced him, it was hailed as a final victory for the so-called last liberal in the Senate. The truth was that Walter Riley was mostly a typical neoliberal, only to the left of the Republican majority of his time. As politics became more polarized, the Riley legacy has done Lorraine few favors. Native American activist groups are hitting hard against Walter's notorious coveting of indigenous artifacts, and the president mocks her on Chirper as Geronimo's girl. Despite routinely taking a battery from the woke on social media for being insufficiently pure and a primary challenger waiting in the wings, Lorraine's greatest career concern is a redshift among her affluent upstate constituency. If Lorraine Riley has any hope of having the opportunity to advance her stalled progressive agenda in a second term, she'll need an issue that can help her overcome growing dissent on both sides of the aisle. Reluctant as she is to re-engage with metahuman affairs, the Superman theory has made it all but unavoidable. Her acquaintance, Professor Martin Stein, sits in jail awaiting trial for dangerous, unethical super science that led to the creation of the Firestorm Protocols. As founder of the Department of Metahuman Affairs, Stein oversaw such an abundance of extraordinary accidents and secret experiments that the United States eclipses all other nations in metahuman population. This enormous power imbalance involving supposedly rogue superhuman elements maintaining and expanding the American empire was intolerable to other countries. Since World War II, nuclear deterrence and the United Nations have stabilized the globe. But for regimes bucking against this established world order, there's a hunger for alternative shows of power. Russian spies were able to procure data from the DMA and began developing their own bastardization of the Firestorm Protocols, creating a black market for short-lived metahuman suicide bombers. Likewise, Zithertech's former association with the DMA afforded them access to, if still generations removed, variation on the protocols, which they sold to world governments to create their own enormously powerful metahuman champions. Lorraine herself was the unwilling victim of the Hewitt Corporation's internally generated attempt at a Firestorm Protocol, falling far short of the goal by affording her only the modest abilities of flight and energy projection. Henry Hewitt subjected himself to the same process, and dubbing himself Takamak employs his powers as part of his criminal ventures with the 2000 Committee. While Zithertech's Metatech for Hire was already controversial, the revelation of a concerted effort to mass-produce metahumans, spearheaded by Stein, caused an international fervor. Lorraine's former lover, Ronnie Raymond, with Stein's naive puppet and surrogate son and the creation of the most enduring incarnation of these so-called nuclear men. While Raymond was briefly admitted to a rehabilitation center after the Stein revelations broke, he has since disappeared, along with a woman posing as his long-deceased mother. Lorraine Riley has led the congressional investigation of Zithertech, but CEO Candace Zither has fled to Russia, working alongside Vladimir Putin and national hero Pozhar to improve on their metahuman development for the people's heroes. A young French woman, known only as Teresa, is under study at the U.S. scientific research facility Continuum, under the supervision of Dr. Heinrich Megala. The only survivor of Zithertech's remote termination of their Firestorm protocols as part of a cover-up, Teresa is struggling with the effects of having been exposed to Martin Stein's advanced protocols secondary to her Zithertech implants. Zither's protocols appeared to be partially developed from the reverse engineering of apocalyptian technology harvested from the constructed false god Brimstone, a corruption that causes creation of giant rampaging monstrosities when intermingled with Stein's formula. Trace is just such a ticking time bomb in a world waiting for a single match to light it afire. As Lorraine Riley uses her congressional powers to get to the bottom of this multitude of international metahuman operations, her star rises. 
but it also makes her a target for assassination by the 2000 committee, Zillotech's hyena team, and more. Working alongside former Firestorm Jason Rush of Star Labs and Dr. Renita Carter of Continuum, Riley must quietly use her own metahuman abilities as Firehawk to stave off a nuclear man arms race that threatens mutually assured destruction and still make time for the climate crisis during her day job. Good research, because you included the Black Bison collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the truth of the matter is, this was one of the most difficult ones for me, because I've never found Firehawk particularly interesting, and I'm not sure what you do with you know, the, the girl's sidekick of Firestorm. The angle for me was we'll dive into that aspect of Firestorm, but we'll, we'll get back to that later on. Yes, very soon. But first, we have to talk about Fire Lad. You know, is he in the Legion's time? Did you, have you recreated him for a contemporary era? What? Uh, this is actually one of the most true to the characters. Uh, the book is titled The Fatal Fire. It's written by Brandon Thomas of Lion Forge's Noble and Image Comics' Horizon. It's drawn by Carmine Cigian Domenico of The Flash and Marvel's all-new X-Factor. The pitch is pitch black at high noon. Stack Mavlin is maybe the third or fourth person with fire-adjacent powers that you think of in relation to the Legion of Superheroes. His reputation and control of his flaming breath have improved since his time with the Legion of Substitute Heroes, but the main team didn't exactly call him up in their recent reorganization either. It may have been for the best, though, as his time on Earth had left a bad taste in his mouth, as he was forced to battle the xenophobic Justice League of the 30th century. Though working with Leland Macaulay IV leaves him a bit uneasy, the money is good, and nothing unethical has been asked of him. Mostly, Stack helps with various controlled burn needs or to test oxygen levels in places standard technology can't reach or function within. Uh, the job on Kalinor was something else entirely. The former fire lad was tasked with helping to find the lost site of the Flame of Pitar, a mythological place of power and destruction. He was joined by Macaulay's workforce, the Brawlian Bully Repulse, the Mikan Sandman Dune, the Dendronite Sapgirl Amber, and the Brutish Daxamite Meta. Most of these guys were major jerks, but fellow sub Dory Andresen had come along with Stack, and her sunnier outlook had kept him going with the flow. However, they were now being led by the supposedly reformed cyborg criminal Therok, at least on this assignment, and that was liable to be the last straw. Stack still had to finish the job, though, and sure enough, the workforce was able to uncover the flame of Pitar. What was unexpected was that there was still a flicker within the ancient flame that Firelad was expected to magnify. In place of a wick or kindling was the charred remains of an unidentifiable humanoid. Combining the workforce's abilities, Pitar was restored, and the figure likewise was reanimated. This being turned out to be the last survivor of Ryut, sort of, as Mons was one of the only a handful of witnesses to the horror of the Space Sector 666. The anger and terror of the genocide inflicted by the robotic manhunters never left Mons, but when she sought to wield these emotions for revenge, she was rejected by both Sinestro's Yellow Lanterns and her fellow Ryushin Atrocitus's Red Lanterns. Seeking an alternative, she became a disciple of the cult of Pitar, and though they had attempted to bar her entry, Mons eventually managed to immolate herself within the flame of Pitar. Yet she was unable to control the ferocity of her transformation within, and the conflagration that followed wiped out much of Kalinor, burying the pyre. She was just what Therok had been looking for, redubbing her monstrous, the final member of his most dangerous incarnation of the Fatal Five yet. The workforce recognized the threat monstrous represented while Leland Macaulay also saw an instrument that could revenge his family against the Legion. Even though Macaulay had been played, he still ordered workforce to stand down. Many refused, and the whole were abandoned on the desolate Kalinor with their vehicles remotely locked down by Macaulay. The assembled resistance may be able to hold back Monstrous and Therok, 
but they're not on the same page, as some try to curry favor with either Macaulay or Thayrock. Worse, they will soon be joined by Empyria, descendant of Imperiax Prime, Zaxxon of Devstam IV, descended from Mongols' race, and the last Zardian Lobo. Can Firelad, Rainbow Girl, and the Workforce escape Kalnor unaided, survive against all odds, including backstabbing and infighting, and alert the Legion of Superheroes of the Fatal Five made up of world-destroying beings of Superman-level power? Not all of them, surely, if any at all. And after six issues, everybody's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he completely redesigned this thing. An effort to deflame the line. This one is just called The Lads. So Stack, and I'm I'm spelling it like pancakes uh, because it's not in the future, is the leader of a superpowered London punk band who use their trivial powers for stagecraft, basically. Though they're they're really anti-authority, so uh, they can also use them to stick it to the man. What superheroics there are, are on account of their Volkswagen tour bus being a weirdness magnet, as it was once owned by Grant Morrison or something. And this is a series that's really cheeky, so that's quite possible. So imagine a manager who practices the dark arts, a boy band of doom, groupies who turn out to be figments of the imagination, weirdness like that. Who else is in the band? Uh, we can go with musician versions of the Substitute Legion. Color Kid or Ulu, great for a light show. Antenna Boy or Kiefer, who can get your single on the radio whether they like it or not. Uh, Porcupine Pete loves his piercings. And Dag or Stone Boy is the roadie who turns into stone when he gets stoned. We can also have Night Girl as a hot goth chick who they might be opening for. She can't be in the lads, obviously. You had like a rock and roll series earlier. <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> So we're still mirroring each other just at different times, at least. <laughs> yes, we're, we're sort of out of sync, but uh, parallel lines. Okay, who's next? Firestorm, the nuclear man. Well, there have been so many versions of Firestorm. I'm basically treating him as a composite character, uh, a gestalt that different people can combine into. In the origin story that will eventually be told, the person who is the basis for Firestorm's body is a ghost. A shadow on the wall left by an atomic explosion. That shade seeks out people to possess and drives them to right wrongs so it can move on, possibly. And it can only do that to people who have been dosed with a certain level of radiation. That level would normally kill you. So really, it needs to grab two people who have the combined rads required. So maybe the Professor and Ronnie are the first combo to fool the audience, but... Jason and Mikhail can return. We'll introduce lots of new characters. Uh, you can even redo combos. Can we, what if Stein is the is in the driver's seat and Ronnie's in the head? Stuff like that. And we learn about the atomic ghost eventually because he possesses someone who has the right amount of Rengens in their system and and survives. So whether that's because they're just about to die or they're Superman or something, suddenly there's only one person that is Firestorm. So the ghost is the talking head, and that's how we learn about its identity. Anyway, lots of different permutations of the character. Not all male, not all young, tallish adults. Uh, I want to play with that. I, I kind of want to repurpose a laughable IP for the title and call it Nuclear Family, but seems like that would blow the surprise early on or something. I don't know. So I like it. It's like, we are Firestorm. We are Firestorm. All of us could be. So long as we got a dose of radiation, which, you know, could happen anytime. So (laughs) you already hinted at what you were doing with Firestorm. Complete the picture. 
in my opinion, there are really two Firestorm series. There's Jerry Conway's and there's John Ostrander's. The problem is the two approaches are incompatible, the former ruining the latter. The best way, to my mind, to fix Firestorm is to take the geopolitical stuff out and give that to a related character so that they could uh, you know, be better employed. So that's what I did. To me, at heart, the appeal of Firestorm is what if, instead of Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man, Flash Thompson became Nova? Uh, with all apologies to Shag, Ronnie Raymond, and Martin Stein poison that formula. In order to revive the Jerry Conway premise, you need a completely fresh start. And for me, that's the Firestorm Matrix, written by Ram V of Justice League Dark and Images Paradiso, drawn by Thico Osio of IDW's Transformers vs. Visionaries and Dark Horses No One Left to Fight. It's Kamala Khan bends it like Beckham. Aravanand is a third-generation British Indian, born and raised in Southall, West London, UK, where Ravi's mother, Nisha, is an accomplished scientist who remains proudly her immigrant parents' daughter. Ravi's father, Hari, struggled greatly to balance his dual cultural identities. Dad's happy that Ravi has embraced his British side, but his mother is disappointed by his lack of ambition and disrespect of tradition. Ravi just wants to be a regular teen, hanging out with his friends and playing video games. Ravi gets pressured into a school program for teen internships at Star Labs, where his mom works. Nisha is working on the Firestorm Matrix, a mysterious energy source surrendered by the scandalized American superhero. During a mother-son argument in the lab, there's an unexpected energy surge that causes the Matrix to disappear, taking the pair with it. Now Ravi and Nisha are the possessors and possessed by the Firestorm Matrix, allowing them to become a variation on the prior hero. During their fusion, Ravi takes direction from his mother in how to wield his powers of flight and transmutation, and Nisha gets to see the courage and determination her son hides beneath his cool, relaxed exterior. Unfortunately, the progress they made in the relationship as Firestorm is lost to Nisha when they fission. Ravi struggles with the emotional back and forth, especially as his grades slip further and with his avoidance of any further responsibility. It's all Nisha can do to hold her career together as her disappearances from work become routine. Her memory lapses make her fear that she may have a tumor like the one that took her mother. Meanwhile, Dad Hari has to deal with the deterioration of both his wife and his son while caring for his two younger daughters. Besides the family drama, the new Firestorm will become the highest profile superhero in England, bringing out a slew of metahuman conflicts as well as skullduggery from his own government and others in pursuit of his power. Firestorm premise is sound, but needs a back-to-basics minimal legacy relaunch with formidable villains. Combining the feet of clay, relatable heroics of uh, the debut with heavier international intrigues, just not Ostrander or Ethan Van Skyver levels of heavy. It's uh, totally more like Men in Black. Ramp down the classic power slightly. Maybe you can convert matter to energy, but not the reverse, or can only transmutate a, a smaller range of inert substances. Keep the flight, no intangibility, no energy blasts, but instead matter to energy bombs. No mention of the word nuclear. Keep the barbecue pit head and guy liner, but everything from the neck down is negotiable for redesign. Okay, yeah. Don't apologize to Shag. Uh, I already warned the, the Fire and Water boys that whatever we came up with for Firestorm would probably anger Shag, and whatever we came up with for The Flash would anger Bass. And that's where we're up to, angering Bass. <laughs> with our Flash ideas. So I'm a fan of the Flashes. You are not. But that makes it even more interesting as to what you'll come up with. So we get two entries 
two different flashes, Jay Garrick and uh, the other one, uh, <laughs> Barry Allen. <laughs> I say that, but all we need is two flash titles. We could use other flashes if we want it, as long as we have two flash titles. Pitch your first one and uh, we'll see where he gets us. JSA, The Golden Years. It's written by Paul Jenkins of Peter Parker, Spider-Man and Vertigo's Hellblader, drawn by Riley Rosmo of Images Proof and the recent Martian Manhunter Maxi series. The pitch is Forrest Garrick. 80 years into their heroic careers, the living legends of World War II, the Justice Society of America are back in action again. All of Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick's speedster friends recently had a celebratory picnic get-together with the current Flash, Barry Allen. Jay and his lovely wife, Joan, had a delightful day, shared a sweet kiss goodnight, and then she didn't wake up the next morning. Uh, Barry and his super friends flew into action, trying to determine what had happened to Joan and reverse her sudden demise. But you see, it's not just her. The stately gray sideburns have begun to envelop the whole of Jay's head. His best friend, Alan Scott, and his late-life bride, Molly, have recently gone from sleeping in separate beds to different houses. Wildcat called one of the other Green Lanterns colored the other day on a hot mic, and it became a whole new cycle. The JSA may be back, but they're not all the way back. The modern heroes that love them are trying to figure out what's wrong, but Jay is starting to think that the problem is time going right. Rex Tyler, older even than his fellow JSAers, passes quietly in the night, as Joan had. Alan Scott vividly remembers his renewed youth on an alternate Earth, where he finally found true happiness in the type of same-sex relationship he had vigorously denied himself for decades. Jay's own memories are a raging storm of times and places that he should never have experienced, and he's less concerned about over a super fix than sorting out what his life had been before its ultimate end. He requests the presence of young Wally West to stay with him as he addresses his affairs and paralyzing flashbacks. At first, Jay simply regales Wally with episodes from his storied life, as he had other speedsters before him. But Wally asks questions that Barry and Bart never did. Did he know about the plans to bomb Hiroshima or Nagasaki? Sure, the society may have been forced into retirement during the Korean conflict, but why not engage in Vietnam? Or better yet, use your powers to disarm the USSR without the proxy war. Couldn't Jay have saved JFK, his brother Bobby, or either of the brothers MLK or X? In all those decades, why did the JSA allow so many tragedies and injustices? Most pointedly, Jay recalls a white-haired woman from the early days of his career. She claimed that someone was toying with the space-time continuum and that she was there to help correct these changes. Whereas once Superman had inspired all superheroes that followed, now the JSA needed someone like her to push them together. She even arranged for the JSA to have an encounter with a villain named Ayn Karkul, whose energies extended their lives. Somehow this woman had arrested the aging of the JSA time and again, preserving them to fight another day, but leaves the evils of a wicked world to spread unchecked in their absence. Once Jay recalled her name, Pandora, he realized how true she was to it. Most recently, Pandora had set the JSA against a being called the Galactic Golem, and energies of release had been responsible for creating a whole second Earth of reinvigorated society heroes with no memories of their pasts. But that world was destroyed, and Pandora was now dead. She had assured the glory of the Justice Society reverberated across the metaverse, and the grand team had reunited for one final battle to address the threat she had warned of their entire careers. But the energies were dissipating now, and time was overdue to reclaim her long-in-the-tooth heroes. The truth is, Paul Pot and Ia Men and Osama Bin Laden never carried the Spear of Destiny. The Justice Society just didn't want to get involved with politics, and were perhaps too comfortable in their retiring lives. Jay would be with Joan again soon, and the Justice League will have to bury their parents, as it should be. But until then, Jay would like to spend the time he has left with Wally, since he couldn't give these stories to a son he'd never had. 
in hopes that his generation will learn to be better shepherds of this world than his had been. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of Forrest Gump in there, but there's also a lot of Slaughterhouse-Five where it just, his memories are stuck in time. And it's him basically telling the stories of his life throughout all these strange changes that were inflicted by Pandora and Dr. Manhattan tying into the Doomsday Clock miniseries. Well, you did more with Pandora there than DC ever did. <laughs> well, I've read too many Flash stories not to feel the need to change everything. <laughs> uh, so Jay Garrick is the Flash. There haven't been any others. And he was a big deal in the American Midwest 40 years ago or more. He was so fast, however, that no one back then knew he was African-American, which suited his purposes because he didn't want reprisals on his community in an area that was already pretty full of racial strife. When he started slowing down, he retired as the Flash. Now, on the cusp of retirement as Keystone's police chief, I went with that profession as a tribute to the Jay in the original Flash TV show. Garrick is forced to become the Flash again in the opening issues, and for the first time, people realize that their supposedly white icon was in fact a black man. To some, it's a betrayal. Well, they better check themselves. But uh, like, for example, there, there might be like a white supremacist villain who can't take having been taken down by him. But Garrick gets enough goodwill from people that he considers putting the costume on again, especially after getting his gold watch and finding he has like too much energy and not enough to do after his retirement. But he has slowed down, so I want him to fight more desperately, play dirty. Like, I love the idea of trailing oil behind yourself on purpose and igniting it with friction or breaking the speed of sound on purpose to break things. Speed tricks that are a little more gritty, a little more grounded, that the classic Flash doesn't use much because the physics of the Flash are usually, like, physics bending is more effective or interesting. Or anyway, that's what the series usually does. The book is called Jay Garrick, The Fastest Man Alive, so I can have the second Flash book be called Flash, but it has nothing to do with him. If I just jump into it, the other Flash book, I erased the whole paragraph here because I almost went with a biker-themed Speed Force comic. At some point, I really wanted, I wanted to piss Bass off so bad. And I'd written that and then I said, oh, you know, you're going to be angry about this as long as it's not bikers. It's like, it is so bikers. Uh, but, but then I realized I didn't really like the, the pitch much. And, you know, it was more of a, a trolling experiment. But then I realized one of the few tangent books that I really loved was The Flash, uh, where the comic was essentially clueless for the superhero set. And I even game mastered the character. So uh, really, I played the Hollywood mom, Celeste, in a play-by-email game in the early 2000s. So picking it right up from that one issue of Tangents Flash, Leah Nelson is a celebrity superhero juggling fame, love, and a potentially exploitative parent in the DCU. One of the fun things is that we could repurpose many Flash villains in the Tangent way. In other words, the names are the same, but the characters are total reinventions. But I felt like that was a fun comedy series with, you know, like very classic superhero, but with that whole strange element where the mom dresses as a superhero, but isn't one, the agent for her daughter. If people could buy into that kind of concept for a show about playing chess on Netflix, which is very, very popular, like as we record, then they can accept this sort of, the, the you know, the, uh, the Hollywood mom aspect in a superhero comic, we're ready for it. I'm going to call shenanigans okay. because not only do I think you're still trolling boss, but I think you found a way of doing it twice over. 
But Shag is turnt because he's a tragic fan. So I guess you've got an audience there at least. <laughs> Maybe. So did you keep Barry Allen in your narrative? The Flash is written by Brian Edward Hill of Batman the Outsiders and Images Postal, drawn by Michelle Fife of Marvel's Ultimates and Images Copra. It's BLM CSI Crime Scene Introspection. Look, the Flash comics have consistently been among DC's bestsellers since the Mark Wade run in the early 90s. I'm on record as finding runs fast man boring, but I do like the character Barry Allen, and I don't think that it pays to rock the boat. I think the Flash benefits from striking visuals and imaginative expressions of super speed like yourself. Uh, so I figured Fife would be expected to deliver on inventive applications and daring page layouts. The Flash is currently in a cooling down period after another extended and well-regarded run. No offense intended, but who wants to be the canary in the coal mine, testing the audience's receptiveness for a new take? They've got a TV animation writer and character actor doing it right now with no consistent art team, so it feels like a placeholder run. I feel like now might be a good time to get a bit more introspective and drill down into Barry as a person before the next Rogue War or whatever. Barry's a guy whose life has now been defined by the murder of his mother and the wrongful incarceration of his father for the crime. And yet, Barry still grew up to become a cop himself. He's a Midwesterner, a salt of the earth, back the blue kind of dude. So what happens if he stumbles upon a George Floyd situation where he has to go through defensive or outright aggressive police officers to rush a suspect to the hospital to barely, or not, save their life after an experience of brutality? What happens if the Flash is subpoenaed in that case and there's a public backlash to his questioning the integrity of the Central City Police Department? What if Barry Allen, shaken by the situation, starts looking deeper into the cases in front of him as presented by officers on the scene and begins investigating controversial closed cases in his spare time? What if he tries to leak information to Iris and she refuses, pushing back on Barry's undermining of the social structure? How would Barry deal with his copaganda lifestyle coming back to bite him on his bright red ass? You know, I almost went that way as well, I gotta say, but that wouldn't have been trolling bus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Priorities. Yes. Uh, okay, there are a few Kirby entries in the book, uh, at least two that we need to cover. And one of these is Forager. My take feels a bit classic, but what about yours? Okay. So this is the one where I'm, I'm playing around with the new gods in the commentary game. And there's stuff in there that I would like to have brought to this, but I decided let's make it its own thing. Okay. This is the one, the one you were referring to earlier. Exactly. So the book is Forager, Bugs of New Genesis. It's written by Lilium Rivera of The Education of Margot Sanchez and Goldie Vance, drawn by Paolo Pantalina of Red Hood Outlaw and Zinescope Titles. Supposedly, human bugs were sent by Darkseid to destroy the food supplies of New Genesis through overpopulation and a rapacious consumption. Highfather eventually revealed the truth, that the bugs had been genetically engineered by New Genesis with the intent of starving Apocalypse, but they'd gotten loose and became a domestic nuisance instead. New Genesis had once committed wholesale slaughter against the bugs, but fearing Orion's discovery of their true origin, Highfather proposed improved conditions. The bugs promoted widespread use of contraception to manage their population and began working in service to New Genesis to earn a place in the greater culture. As it turned out, Orion didn't care really much about the bugs and couldn't even be bothered to mourn when their champion forager had helped save all of existence from the anti-life equation during a cosmic odyssey at the expense of his life. Highfather never publicly acknowledged his role in the bug's creation, so popular sentiment remained that they were an apocalypsian plague. And so life hadn't changed much for the bugs. They were still killed indiscriminately by authorities, but usually on a more individual basis rather than en masse. They were still restricted to hive ghettos and were barred from setting foot in Supertown. 
They could fight the new gods' wars and perform the most menial, undesirable tasks while being expected to be grateful for the barest subsistence. The modern female forager refuses to accept those terms. She's seen firsthand Orion's willingness to commit wholesale genocide against the Hive and never expects High Father to dirty his hand with any further kindnesses. Apocalypse still sends mantis around every now and again to stir up trouble, and the angry young males that fall under his sway end up branding all bugs as potential terrorists. Forager knows that sterilization keeps their numbers down, but regardless, they lack the resources to ever truly force new genesis to acknowledge their basic rights. However, Forger has gone off-world many times, including an extended stay on Earth to investigate the murders of several prominent new gods. She had a relationship with Jimmy Olsen that afforded her access to Superman, the world's heroes refused to meddle in fourth world affairs. Regardless, she can pilfer technology and weapons from outside worlds while keeping enough funds rolling into funky Flashmen to forge some mercenary advocacy for the bug's cause. As on New Genesis, Forger is sometimes seen as a menace to be squashed, but she's too smart and has survived too much already to go down easily. Among her recurring foes are the female Furies, Inner Gang, Firefly in a Turf War, and even the Floronic Man, tending to Earth's garden against this invasive species. She'll even make a sometimes ally of the resurrected original Forager, who as a new Genesian by birth can take or leave his bug identity as he chooses. Still, when it comes to sustaining her people, Forager will dig up any help that she can get. Mm, and then plays on class struggle, and so does mine. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, it, it's in the premise. And we just had the bug, bug, the adventures of Forager by the Allreds. My problem with that series was that it was created for a Kirby anniversary, just like Commandy Challenge. And it was schizophrenic, you know, jumping from one corner of the Kirbyverse to the other every issue. And I don't think that's sustainable as a series. But my take is to set it on New Genesis, where Forager is just a bug like all the other bugs. And the new gods treat them as such. But it's clear that they're people, obviously. So Supertown is benevolent on the macro scale, uh, which means they're mostly concerned with that war but they're derisive of the people who live on the planet's surface. So the series explores a bug society that sees itself as inferior and has ghettoed itself, except for Forager, who just doesn't know his place. He's always getting into adventures. He's saving young new gods who have come down for a picnic and run afoul of an apocalypse raiding party, etc. This is actually all from the Kirby issues, in a way. But it's impossible for him to take any credit for his good deeds because nobody really acknowledges a bug. The new gods are sort of played as oblivious, narcissistic celebrities, and Forager as a kind of wise member of the servant class. So, like, my pitch is really Commedia dell'arte in space with a dose of Kirby action. <laughs> Where there, he's a truth teller, you know, he's truth to power, that kind of stuff. But really, it's close to what Kirby was doing with him anyway. Well, and it's funny because I did look at the Bug miniseries, and one of my thoughts with Forger is to play off the name and just basically take as many of the concepts that I couldn't fit anywhere else from the Who's Who and throw it all up Forger. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like that miniseries had kind of already done that to a large degree. And so it's funny, I think you and I both saw the same potential, rejected some of those potentialities, and then ended up kind of on the same wavelength together. <laughs> okay, well, next up is The Force of July, which I, I know, controversially, they were antagonists in the comics, but they're supposed to be a hero team nonetheless. So I included them in the assignment. And look at how white these guys are. 
So uh, we'll get the Freedom Fighters in due course, but these are, let's say, the conservative version of that. They are the super soldiers being created in secret by that side of the aisle in the Firehawk series. So this is the result of this super soldier, the secret super soldier program. They work for the American Security Agency, just like it says in the entry, but they pose as independent patriotic heroes. I want this series to be overtly satirical with heroes who have more in common with Suicide Squad or... Uh, Marvel's Thunderbolts. They're presented as an alternative for the Freedom Fighters, but there's something darker there. Behind closed doors, they're either selfish or misled or outright vile. And in public, they are the fascist streak of American politics. Bad, overpowered cops that get away with it because they have political protection. But then one of them, this is the crux of the series, one of them starts questioning their methods and motivations. And I, I had to think about this. Who am I going to give this role to? And I gave it to one of Silent Majority's duplicates who avoids uh, reintegrating the whole. And then the original is killed. And now he's the new Silent Majority. But mentally, he's a mutant who thinks differently from his duplicates. So it's a play on the nutjob vocal minority on social media and just asking what is the majority stance in America? Indulging your and I conservative sides, uh, we're both who's who constitutional originalists. And I'm sure that's part of the reasons why we go from the text and work outwards from there. So we're, we're pretty much on the same page, but those characters suck and I didn't want to have anything to do with them. Okay. So my take is America Force. It's written by Bill Willingham of Fables and Elementals. It's drawn by Marcio Takara of Boom's Incorruptible and The Incredibles. Uh, the pitch is the Lincoln Project superpowers. As part of his plan to retreat from the global stage, President Trump refused funding to international metahuman initiatives like the Global Guardians. Trump saw fit to fire the Freedom Fighters after several members quit in protest to his meddling and disbanded the Force of July for being beholden to the deep state. He was also deeply suspicious of the Justice League who had apologetically removed the Of America from their name years ago. However, the revelation of the siege fortress hanging over New York and the mobilization of international super teams in response to the Superman theory forced his hand. Further, the GOP recognized the necessity of a government-backed super team and wanted it formed before the incoming Biden administration had any say over the membership. They wanted heroes who would put America first, after all. Most superheroes refused the call, not wanting to be canceled by association. Green Lantern Guy Gardner had followed Simon Baz to Earth with the intent of charging him with insubordination. When Trump's people put out feelers for recruitment, Kiara was one of the few heroes to respond positively. The other was Hank Hall, and where Hank goes, Doug generally follows. Despite Hawkman's having a first approached the administration about forming a new team, his allegiances to Thanagar and the Immortals were considered disqualifying. At Katar's urging, his good friend Ray Palmer serves in both Hawkman's stead and as his eyes and ears within America Force. The Atom is joined by Stargirl, Booster Gold, Spy Smasher, and surprisingly Icon, whose alien allegiances and loyalties to the Shadow Cabinet were better concealed than Hawkman's. Augustus Freeman V is a welcome Republican contributor, and the team desperately needed both a Superman-level powerhouse and at least token minority representation. As both an alien and one of the Immortals, Icon clearly has an agenda, but pretty much everyone else here does too. Who's going to call him out? Despite having nearly double the raw numbers, America Force's first outing against the better-disciplined Fearsome Five sets the serial comic tone of the book. Similar to the early JLI, America Force is its own foremost adversary. The headstrong guy and Hank run roughshod over mission objectives while scolded by Ray or gently redirected by Dawn. 
The immature Courtney gets into trouble trying to impress her much older crush Booster, who is himself distracted from flirting with Spy Smasher, who is obsessed with investigating Icon, whose mere presence on missions is unreliable at best. They should have every advantage in their inevitable confrontation with the conflict engine. It's going to be a national embarrassment, isn't it? <laughs> well, I like that group of heroes as, uh, you know, that they're certainly more interesting than the actual Force of July, which um, following the usual Mike Barr creative process is just a dumb pun made flesh. Next up is the Forever People. And that's uh, our second Kirby assignment. Are you an originalist with this? Nobody actually likes the Forever People. I know. It's the fourth world title you get because you're already buying the other ones. It's like New Mutants or Teen Titans. It offers the unique torture of middle-aged men writing precious prose coming out of the mouths of babes. The inauthenticity is excruciating, and I'm not sticking my neck out to fail at putting Big Bear and Seraphin across for another low-selling single-volume trade collection. Therefore, a complete name-only reimagining is in order. The Forever People, written by Tom Taylor of Injustice and Deceased. Drawn by Eduardo Pansica of Earth 2, World's End, and Batwing. The pitch is Highlander meets Game of Thrones. For the entire existence of humankind, we have been shepherded by powerful beings whose lifespans and abilities dwarf our own. The most prominent are the various gods and demigods, once and presently deified by the common man. Less overtly, other dimensional and otherworldly beings exert their own exceptional influence. Apart from them stands a heightened humanity, possessed of fantastic science or daunting sorcery, neither gods nor demons, terrestrial in origin, but beyond mortal kin, these are the forever people. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, the life entity was sent crashing to Earth, a deep backwater world populated by cavemen. The intent was to conceal the incredible power of white lantern energy from abuse by more advanced civilizations. Perceived as a fallen star, the landing site was investigated by Cro-Magnon tribesmen who were evolved and awarded immortality by the white lantern energy. Tribes affected by the energy included the bear, wolf, and bird peoples. The sole survivor of the wolf tribe was Vandar Adge, who killed any of his blood who could oppose him. 20,000 years ago, Vandar Adge learned xenophobia from a guardian and a Koth, the burning, eventually revealed to be a white Martian. Vandar's hatred of the other fueled his drive to form armies to eradicate alien intruders and fortify Earth against the universe. He then co-founded the Demon Knights to exterminate Daemonites, as well as the Council of Immortals to address Karens and the supernatural. Meanwhile, the Bear Tribe was survived by five family members, who each developed houses over the millennia committed to their individual principles. The Immortal Man, Clarn Arg, formed the House of Action, which seeks out heroes to affect direct change for humanity. Clarn would bestow a portion of his own mortality onto his heroes so that they could do good for centuries. Likewise, his fellow bear tribesmen formed the houses of knowledge, harmony, and expression. Their sister, the Infinite Woman, founded the House of Conquest. Unlike Vandal Savage, the Infinity Woman wants to absorb the best of alien powers and lead armies of humanity to dominate the greater universe. Finally, you have the bird tribe which was sundered to form the Bat People and the Judas Tribe. Rather than perpetual immortality, the heads of these tribes were defined through conscious reincarnation. The modern bird tribesmen are Hawkman, Hawkwoman, and the Lady Black Hawk Kendra, while the modern incarnation of Hoset is Anton Hastor. Beyond the most ancient tribesmen, you have numerous other houses who make up a sort of immortal Illuminati. All of these various factions had more or less agreed to carve up the Earth and keep the peace, thanks in large part to the existential threat of nuclear arms. However, as interstellar travel has become increasingly possible, most of the forever people now see the potential held in distant stars. 
Foremost among them, the Infinite Woman, who in the 21st century has re-engaged the eternal war between the Forever People by murdering her brother, the Immortal Man, and executing most of his charges. A few of the survivors managed to reveal the presence of her base of operations, the Siege, hovering invisibly above New York. With the existence of the Forever People publicly confirmed, and superheroes like the Justice League investigating, the world of man and immortals is now on the precipice of outright warfare. Ben Savage is best positioned at this stage, as he exerts influence over the international peacekeeping force Stormwatch, as well as the Injustice Society, Hoarder, the Fourth Reich, Tartarus, Locust, the Religion of Crime, and many more. However, his primary target remains the Caribbean, the Daemonites, and other alien races that he's obsessed with eradicating from his world. He's a natural ally to the House of Conquest, as they both will happily slay and enslave outsiders before they inevitably turn on one another. However, Savage's machinations have created one of his own worst threats. As former members of Stormwatch have risen to oppose its oppressive agenda as the radical leftist army calling themselves the Authority, they seek to save the world by toppling the regimes of spreading fascist forces in service to Vandal Savage and the Immortal Woman, but inspire their own backlash in the process. As ever, Morgane Le Fay is most inclined to conspire with the Arcane, including the likes of Etrigan the Demon, the Parliament of Trees, and the Phantom Stranger. She brings the bear the Swords of Sorcery, served by the likes of the Shining Knight, the Vampire Andrew Bennett, Solomon Grundy, Stalker, and the Black Orchid. A cast of thousands. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a big one. Uh, however, Felix Faust waits in the wings, her greatest direct threat within the House of Mystery. Meanwhile, Dr. Mist guides the House of Secrets, with his global guardians and laymen underestimated as threats, and having infiltrated the House of Mystery via his ties to Argus and Justice League Dark. His secret alliances with Arion and Queen Hippolyta extend his reach without detection. Upstart spoilers such as Ra's al Ghul, Cersei, Noman, Dr. Simon Hurt, Mr. Z, Count Viper, The Untitled, and Mordru will ever shift the balance of power. The repercussions of this eternal war may be felt across eternity, or at the very least, unto the ends of the earth. That is a crazy, crazy title, but a good tangent-style reboot of the, the words Forever People. That makes sense. Look, I'm going to admit I like the Forever People. I don't like the Forever People in you know, modern-day comics or anything, but I like the original series. I just reread the whole fourth world, and to me, the Forever People were just as engaging as the rest. I'm going to say that, but the problem with the Forever People is that despite their name, they were dated right out of the box. You know, they're hippie kids that already didn't represent the youth of the early 70s. So I'm replacing the flower power with whatever whatever youth quake attitudes are prevalent when the book comes out. They're into recording themselves. The group is more diverse in terms of gender and sexual identity. Their parent new gods are squares ruining the galaxy with their wars and rules. So they take their super cycle and they go out to find themselves and broadcast their experiences. Kirby touched on something in the original series when he dispersed them through time for an issue or two. And you had Big Bear making the Romans abandon Britain. You had Mark and Dreamer almost saving Lincoln, stuff like that. The super cycle trip shouldn't be limited to one time and one space. So it makes sense with their name that it can actually go anywhere and any when, and they do. A real tour of the DC Universe from early Maltus to the barren earth and wherever they go, it's their essential message uh, that wins the day. It's it's a bit like Bob Haney's Teen Titans, who are always helping teenagers with teenagery problems using teenagery solutions. 
And if my description of today's woke teen is already passe by the time this show airs, switch it up for the next thing. Basically, we're going to need age-appropriate consultants on this book, but it is whatever the youth is actually like. Let's give it to the next Jim Shooter. Where is that 16-year-old who can write a comic? You know, We're really in the teams now. There's a number of teams back-to-back. Forgotten Heroes is right up next. And uh, for me, well, very simple. Uh, I'm making it an anthology series that tells several multi-part stories serialized every issue about DC's back catalog of obscure heroes. I say DC's, but it could have reimagined versions of old Fawcett and quality characters that were never seriously resurrected, like Neon the Unknown, there he is, the Blue Torpedo, Madame Fatal, as well as, yes, the characters from this entry like the Immortal Man or the Sea Devils. So really, any character that hasn't been in circulation for a while or who was never more than a one-off could get a strip in this book and maybe become a star. Off the top of my head, how about Chain Gang War? I like Zeep the Living Sponge from Dial H for Hero and then Hero Hotline's Night Shift. Or Monel Precursor Hulk Carr. How about bringing back young heroes in love? Frank, it's time to trot out your one great wonder tot story that you have in you. Uh, and uh, But this is the book where it's just like, let's try out plenty of concepts, but they're all from the obscure side of things. I even toyed with, is this a weekly? Is this like Marvel Comics Presents? And it's a weekly with, you know, three, four strips going on. You know, I, I don't want to bankrupt the company. I do, in fact, have Wonder Tot stories. <laughs> All right, brother from another mother, let's go down this road. I've come to the conclusion that I'm not interested in revisiting the original Forgotten Heroes and that the premise cannot be replicated. When they were formed in the 80s, the team was a collection of properties that had headline series and enjoyed at least modest success in their day. The problem was that they were mostly semi-realistic, non-powered, science-based explorers, and the zeitgeist shifted away from that after the moon landing. In a comics landscape fixated on superheroics, they were legitimately sidelined and forgotten for a decade or more publishing. Given the reference-heavy world-building of a post-Huzu landscape, with a drive for including as much fan minutia as possible, the forgotten heroes aren't anymore. With the exception of the Sea Devils, they've all carried their own titles or been prominent supporting characters within the last decade. Anyone with comparable success as the original lineup are constantly renewed IP. I could pull out some lesser New Bloods or uh, the few Planet DC heroes that didn't get a mention recently, but that's a cheat because they were never memorable enough to be forgotten. I'd argue that the new age of heroes that spun out of Dark Knight's Metal just a couple of years ago have been more thoroughly forgotten by readers than anyone that I could dig up. Uh, Most of my line of books are continuations of ideas from The Immortal Men and The Unexpected, uh, but I bet most people listening wouldn't have known it. I just find it hard to believe that DC would put out a book called The Forgotten Heroes that did such a disservice to the IP they're trying to put across. So for me, this is the throwaway premise of the podcast, Forgotten Heroes, an anthology written and drawn by various copyright holders and hired guns. It's not a title. It's a legal obligation for the maintenance of trademarks. Properties featured include Steve Niles and Scott Hampton's Simon Dark, Aaron Lepresti's Garbage Man, Christopher J. Priest's Zero, John Francis Moore's lawyer Allison Parrish from Touch, Keith Giffen's Vexed and the Heckler, Bob Harris and Marcos Martin's Breach, Joyner Wilson and Ferns' The Scarlet Redeemer, Peter David and David Lopez's Fallen Angel, uh, Chris Claremont's Sovereign Seven. DC Comics co-owns or has some stake in pretty much all these properties, but there's no incentive to invest in them within their shared universe, 
So the anthology exists solely to insure against rights reversion or infringements. Uh, they can even throw in some stuff that they essentially own outright, like the human race, so that they don't waste resources on non-starters like an Electric Warriors reboot miniseries. Right before the book gets canceled, they can even do a showcase number 100-style nonsensical crossover wherever in battle Sinar, the Demiurge, on Jim Starlin's hardcore station. <laughs> I'd read Zero and uh, Heckler stories for sure. Well, uh, it's all about quantity. Uh, quality is uh, in the eye of the beholder, but we're going to just pack as many cosmos as possible. And you're right, a Chain Gang War would have fit perfectly in my title, so I'm stealing it from you. <laughs> yeah, it fits. Freedom Fighters... Is this a political book? Are you are you doing more politics? Could it be? <laughs> okay. So as a ghost editor, my one baby was the Forever People. Jim Lee had personally signed off on the title, having worked on Immortal Men and feeling that there was untapped potential in the premise. I actually had a strong role in the development of a title that was afforded a nice budget where I could hire someone like Tom Taylor who brings his own audience. A huge inspiration were all the toys I was going to get to play with to build up all the adversarial factions within the title, like the Conflict Engine, the Authority, the Force of July, and the Freedom Fighters. One of my goals with this slate of books was to keep them as independent as possible, rather than having them cross over or feed into one overarching narrative. Unfortunately, my editor reported that DC was so excited about the development of Forever People that they demanded we spin off most of the planned adversaries into individual titles instead of featuring them in, in the actual book. This was all coming down from DC Upper Management, by which I mean the three people that haven't been laid off yet. Uh, they had looked at the results of the last presidential election and the ongoing ire directed mostly at Marvel for their SJW elements and decided there was gold in them thar red states. They weren't prepared to go full comics gate, especially with controversy-averse AT&T breathing down their necks, but I would have to see to the sidelining of other projects in favor of this slate of conservative comics. Oh, and they were pulling the authority at Stormwatch three issues in to save them for a Wildstorm relaunch under another editor's stable. Uh, we'll have to stat in redrawn panels of the Elite, and the Superman office wants them written out before issue six. They're not planning on using them, they're just jerks like that. We're horse trading with the JLA office for the Hyper Clan, but we may have to make do with freaking Durlins. Ooh, Vandal Savage is so scared of Zoidberg wrapped in a blankie. Anyway, Freedom Fighters, written by Nathan Edmondson of Grifter, Marvel's The Punisher, and Images of the Activity, drawn by Rafa Sandoval of The Flash and Hal Jordan of the Green Lantern Corps. This is the Ammon Bundy League. Uncle Sam had lectured incoming President Trump that the living embodiment of the United States of America wouldn't be the Don's personal lackey. It shouldn't have been such a shock when he was fired by Chirp during an active operation in Zandia, but so it went. Ray Terrell promptly resigned in disgust. The backstabbing Stan Silver was reinstalled in his place, but he was fired less than two weeks later after a disastrous recorded conversation with a Newstime reporter where he crudely referenced the unique onanastic capabilities of a plastic man, but made of himself a punchline. The third Ray, named Lucian Gates, was eventually drug up. Uh, the Andre Twist firebrand uh, thought that he could serve as a check and balance, but he was maligned as a radical Marxist and discharged. John Trujillo, but it heads with EPA Chief Scott Pruitt, and the Black Condor was set free. Scientist Andrew Franklin was fired after publicly criticizing the U.S.'s withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord. He was replaced as a human bomb by former Marine Sergeant Michael Taylor. Lester Colt became enamored with the strength demonstrated by the president and relisted as doll man. Likewise, influencer and mega enthusiast Stormy Knight displaced the fan lady that had succeeded her. The Red Bee, Jenna Raleigh, tried to join for the good of the country, but departed after one no-win situation after another. 
the Freedom Fighters appeared to finally stabilize and prove useful to the administration under the leadership of Father Time. But then the siege revelation turned public opinion sharply against any so-called immortals. Father Time also became the subject of a QAnon conspiracy theory involving the corruption of his little girl persona, tarring the entire Freedom Fighters until their presence could no longer be tolerated. In the interim, Uncle Sam had returned to the heartland, slowly gathering a militia of like-minded patriots to retake the United States. Though Sam was himself one of the forever people, he came to see immortals like Father Time as enablers of the deep state that threatened the liberty he held so dear. Today, Uncle Sam, Lady Liberty, The Ray, Major Victory, Phantom Lady, The Human Bomb, Mayflower, and Dollman form the core of a revolutionary army, preparing for the civil war to come, fighting for the very soul of the nation. We do not recognize the authority of liberal oppressors. We call out the lie of America force as the tool of capitalist warmongers run amok at the expense of the common man. We will not tolerate the lawless rioters and race baiters pouring gasoline into the conflict engine. We believe in the principles of the founding fathers and will stand beside our police officers, soldiers and firefighters to thwart those who so discord the United States. Death to the deathless globalists who claim to be forever people. Only God is endless and only the moral are truly of the people. If you want our freedom, come and take it. But you'd better bring more than words or our hill will be the one you die on. So say the freedom fighters. <laughs> so it's a little closer. I mean, in the development of it, it's a little closer to what I was doing with the Force of July. Well, you see that I actually dumped much of the Force of July yeah. in there. Basically, yeah. we're going to go for the, the, the crazy farthest right. And rather than tar all the freedom fighters, uh, most of them are quality characters that I have some affection for. I grew up all the guys I like and dump a bunch of Force of July guys in there to help uh, serve as ballast, essentially. Or use the like the later non-quality versions of the characters, yeah. Oh wait, am I tipping my hand as to my political agenda? Oopsie. <laughs> oh, I'll give you your far right book. This is <laughs> I'm going to give it to you, all right? You're going to curl it up and shove it. Well, mine is going to be the opposite, you know, because since I did that with the Force of July, Freedom Fighters is the opposite. I'm saying that America's in crisis, and that awakens the spirit of Uncle Sam, and he assembles a team of what certain government officials are calling unsanctioned super soldiers. So while the Freedom Fighters are unaffiliated with the government, they've inspired the creation of the Force of July, because Uncle Sam is very inspirational. He can't help it. It's part of his power set. Uh, so pretty much the classic team, minus Firebrand, who's, I, who I really sidelined, pulled from a more diverse cross-section of America. So maybe like Phantom Lady might be an Asian-American, Black Condor, Native American, which was what they did, the way they went with in modern comics. Uh, the Ray could be Puerto Rican, Dollman, African-American. The Earth X flavor comes from them focusing a lot on neo-Nazism, alt-right domestic terrorism. They're not crime fighters. They are defenders of democracy and other so-called American values. I want this book to be as aspirational as The Force of July is meant to be more sarcastic in its approach. You know, the, these two books are mirrors. No, sounds good. Uh, but I think the, the main disconnect is that especially after being disheartened with the recent election results, I kind of figured maybe Uncle Sam would be with the uh, the opposing political party. And so that's why it kind of went, uh, went to the place that it did. Uh, yeah. I do appreciate your more optimistic approach to the characters. <laughs> Let's go with uh, Fury. I'm disconnecting her from Wonder Woman. So hopefully you'll keep her in there. But um, I'm making Lita a female Fury from Apocalypse. 
Kirby up the costume a little bit and maybe get away from the Aryan look and make her dark-skinned. And she's kind of this universe's Big Barda minus Mr. Miracle. She's been sent to Earth on a scouting mission. And there she finds freedom and fresh air. She decides to stay. She sends false reports. Uh, she does her own thing. She becomes a hero. Other female Furies are part of the supporting cast. At first on remote calls. Maybe they have their own subplots at home. Eventually, they follow her to Earth where I play them as a fun sorority. It's a bit like later issues of Mr. Miracle where the Furies become part of the circus act. Randomly, I felt. but uh, And there's also a big action in the style of the original Fourth World comics. So of my three Kirby'd series, this is the only one that can really address the war between the new gods. It's the one that's more on the epic scale. I like it, and you guessed right. I'm going to steer into the Wonder Woman-ness of it. As you should. She's one of your, <laughs> she's one of your characters. So The Fury, written by Marguerite Bennett of Aftershock's Animosity and Insects, drawn by Leila Del Duca of Images Shudder and Sleepless. My take is Vertigo Wonder Woman. One constant of Wonder Woman fandom is seeing creators come in and do their grimdark, bold new directions that never take because it isn't who Wonder Woman is. Examples include J. Michael Straczynski's The Odyssey, Daniel Warren Johnson's DC Black Label miniseries Dead Earth, the recent Witching Hour crossover, and the Brian Azzarello, Cliff Chang, New 52 relaunch. It seems to me that there's at least a creative desire to do a mature reader's version of The Amazing Amazon, and it might actually be sustainable with one not named Diana. We all know the story of the division of the Amazons following their pillaging by the forces of Heracles, how Hippolyta led her Amazons to immortal isolation on Themyscira, while her sister Antiope chose to remain mortal in man's world. Antiope's lost tribe of Amazons settled in the deserts of Egypt, becoming known as the Bana Magdal. Eventually, Princess Diana rediscovered this tribe while pursuing the cheetah to recover her magic lasso. During this episode, the Bannon McDowell's champion stalker, Zahara, lost her consort, Imara, to the claws of the cheetah. In fact, that murder was the very first act visited upon the Bannas in their debut comic appearance. Zahara pursued the cheetah, but was defenestrated for her trouble. Uh, Zahara survived and continued to hire herself out as a mercenary in her native Middle East, until all the Bannon McDowell were repatriated to Themyscira, where they maintained a tense coexistence for many years. Recently, Helena Cosmatos was murdered at the Areopagus. The Greek Cosmatos was a minor superheroine during World War II called the Fury, who served with the young All-Stars. Cosmatos had been possessed by the mythological Arenas, Tisiphone, which afforded her long life and vitality, though clearly cut relatively short by an assassin. Hippolyta tasks Zahara to quietly investigate the death of her quasi-surrogate daughter Helena, who was never embraced by the Amazons, and in truth, even by a reticent Hippolyta herself. The quest is an international one, as Helena Cosmatos had lived a long and eventful life, occasionally wrecking bloody vengeance against mankind. For instance, Helena's husband was murdered, and she was willing to abandon her own child, named for Hippolyta, in order to torture the killer over a span of years. Having so long neglected her child and were the vengeance sated, Helena chose to retire as an elderly woman in England rather than face the consequences of her choices. This led Zahara to the nursing home where Helena lived out her final years and put her on the trail of the American Rose Walker. She was an associate of Helena's who was the granddaughter of the home's longest staying resident, a victim of sleeping sickness. Thanks to her familiarity with the Pantheon, Zahara is able to connect Rose Walker as a blood relative to the godlike Endless. Further, Zahara determines that Helena's abandoned child was Lita Hall, 
who had herself served as a minor superheroine called the Fury on a descendant team from the All-Stars Infinity Incorporated. Lita had conceived a child with the ghost of her dead husband while trapped in a netherworld called the Dreaming. When the child was kidnapped, Lita set in motion events that which led the Aranus to slay the Dream King Morpheus for the mercy killing of his son Orpheus. As a consequence, Lita's son Daniel was forever taken from her to serve as the new Dream King. With the help of Rose, Zahara interviews Lita and discovers that she had been molested by her father. It wasn't that Helena was torturing her husband's killer. That was just a story that she concocted to cover for murdering him herself. Zahara determines that the Endless's desire had used despair and delirium to drive Lita Hall to murder her mother over the death of her father, creating a loop that would pit furies against one another as Tisiphone exited Helena in favor of her daughter. The dominion of the Endless was far out of Zahara's depth, and in order to survive from becoming entangled in one of their plots, she sought out the Aranus that had previously empowered Helena Cosmatos. Rather than Tisiphone, Zahara came to be a vessel for her sister Electo, who specializes in moral crimes. Thus, the Furies were pitted against one another over the Cosmatos' family stain. The new Fury is closer to the myths than previous incarnations, with serpents in her hair, bat wings, and wielding a flaming scourge. The latest incarnation of the superheroine ultimately frees Tisiphone from Lita's body and turns her over to the goddess Nemesis for judgment. Lita was allowed to return to Daniel in his kingdom of the Dreaming, amidst open hostilities among the Endless and the overall holy war between pantheons that desire had ignited. Electo, determining that the kindly ones were outside the jurisdiction in executing Morpheus, must make restitution by renewing activity on the mortal plane through Sahara. But in deference to Zahara, their next case would be a trial of the cheetah. Hmm. Yeah, I almost used the young all-star. And then I thought, well, you know, is this is this show going to go right up to the updates or something? So I left her alone for now. You get another entry if you wish it. <laughs> Did you do that? I have such sympathy for your listeners because it's probably going to be like a double-length episode. But yes, of course, I wasn't going to miss this opportunity. In part because The Gambler was one of the series that was in development before I had to come out with all the uh, Forever People spinoffs and tie-ins. And, you know, the, the creative team we have, were passionate about it, so we finally managed to get it out the door a little later. So the book is The Gambler. It's written by... Miria Lovett of Boom Studios, Heartless, I believe it was, and uh, Black Mass Loud. It's drawn by Aletha Martinez of Lion Forge's Superb and Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Felipe Carrillo is basically the Mexican John Constantine. Dirt poor and dark skin in a remote indigenous village. It didn't take Felipe long to figure out that the only opportunities he'd ever have, he'd have to make for himself. Felipe learned how to hustle from a young age, but his looks meant that con artistry wasn't going to be a viable option. Vice was his specializing in games of chance weighted in his favor. Felipe's other advantage was a complete lack of scruples, as he'd manipulate, sell out, and otherwise take advantage of anyone to get his way. This ruthlessness also drew him to working with narcos and incorporating elements of the occult into his games. Over time, Felipe managed to win a number of items of arcane value, and he was able to use his connections to act as a favor broker among varied and sordid parties. Felipe was living comfortably, but he knew that he was accumulating enemies that would never allow him to rest easy unless he could make himself untouchable. He saw his best chance in a game of poker with demons, with an enchanted deck of cards potentially on the table. Felipe was a man of skill and charisma, with nerves immune to the most outrageous bluff. When that fell short, he was also an accomplished cheat. Felipe performed very well at the game and eventually managed to press Diablo himself to pony up his infernal deck. The first problem was that Felipe's collateral was substantial, the souls of his family, 
obtained through various personal favors to his kin. The second fatal flaw was that Diablo caught Felipe red-handed with illegal cards. Before the night was over, Felipe joined his clan in being slaughtered, down to the livestock on the family farm as the whole property was set ablaze. However, this was Matamoros, not Juarez, and here the angels came. Felipe had one final ace, his niece Amaranta Felix. While bending his own family's souls to his service, Felipe Carrillo had taken note of his sister's exceptionally bright middle daughter. She was the most pious of the children, attending church daily and memorizing scripture each night. From an early age, Amaranta had demonstrated a photographic memory, and with a little training, she proved to be a world-class card sharp. In a rage, Diablo had taken Felipe's life at the card table, and thus all of his estate was transferred to his niece. Diablo may have had a lien on, on all those reassigned possessions, but the Lord had taken this child for one of his own. The Lord's angels stayed Diablo's hand, and Abaranta was free to walk away from the inferno. But again, this was a bright young girl. She looked around and saw that her entire family had been wiped out. All of her worldly possessions were turning to ash, leaving her with no one and nothing to sustain herself. This was a border town played by drug runners, and everyone knew what happened to those unfortunates who were left vulnerable to the cultists. Amaranta asked the angels if they would continue to protect her after this moment, and they offered that she would know the kingdom of heaven so long as she remained pure. Amaranta was no fool, and like her uncle before her, recognized that her fate was entirely in her own hands. She knew that a child in her straits had little chance of holding on to their purity in Matamoros. Uh, so she looked Diablo in his snake eyes and offered him all or nothing on a single deal from his infernal deck. Diablo was cocky, and the opportunity to win a soul out from under God's own chosen was too sweet to turn down. And that's how Amaranta Feliz took the pot from the devil himself. By bargaining with her soul, the Lord's angels turned their backs on the child, though Amaranta still sought the grace of God. In her favor, Amaranta now possessed her uncle's holding, for good and more often ill. Most importantly, she had gained Felipe Carrillo's long-prized infernal deck. The cards held enormous power. If she drew a card from the suit of diamonds, her mental and physical acuity, along with that of the card itself, would increase based on its numeric value. She only needed a 10 to cut through an actual diamond like a hot knot through butter and fully grasp the science behind that feat. Hearts gave her supernatural empathy and charm, up to something approaching telepathy and absolute subjugation of a subject. Jacks provided physical and material strength that at their most extreme could withstand a nuclear blast. Clubs increased her other skills, including fighting, and they made for excellent thrown weapons. The deck could also double for tarot readings, and Amaranta was only just beginning to experiment with the results of various combinations. The drawback is that after she uses a card, it is absent from the deck for the number of days equal to its face value. Should she be called to play the deck, as she often is, all players will know which cards are missing from that game. As good a player as Amaranta is, demons aware of the details of a light deck are akin to a game of Russian roulette. Eight years on, Amaranta Feliz is still a righteous person, working toward restitution for Felipe Carrillo's victims and compromised persons. Uh, she's still trying to free her family from a sort of spiritual escrow because they can't get into heaven or hell because of the manipulation of Felipe. She also uses her skills and abilities to help others, both from a place of strong moral conviction and in hopes of someday earning back the grace that she cast aside on that grim night when she was a sole survivor of her uncle's terrible ambitions. I'm glad you did something with a gambler because I felt like that had potential. I just couldn't crack it. So originally, the first idea I had for this whole episode was to do a female Fury comic. And then it all got wrapped up into the Fury book. So I had to look elsewhere. So I'm going to do something 
several of my guests have done, but I've never have. And it's designed an event book that will eventually cross over into all the other series. And in reality, it is its own book. And then it becomes a crossover and then it returns to being its own book. So I call it Forgotten Villains. And the series itself follows a shadowy group of obscure villains pulled and redesigned from across DC Comics history, including some of the ones in the entry. And it's kind of an office politics kind of thing. Like the first year you're seeing the Secret Society of Supervillains type team form and argue about what they should do. And there's a comedy vibe to it. And But they mean business. And we would see them succeed at bankrolling their organization, causing mayhem, etc., and at that one-year mark, there's a kind of, I don't know, remember us moment uh, that turns into an event in which each hero book has to deal with either with a villain from their deep past or from another series a la Acts of Vengeance. Obviously, like, the villains are going to lose. That might move us to a second act where they're on the run and trying to be forgotten again. I dig it. I dig it. Uh, I, I think it's a good way to close out, too, because you've got a nice big property uh, there on the back end. Well, finally, we follow the tradition started by the irredeemable shag back in episode three. We have only money to buy one series from the other guy's line. Which one will it be? And it's very difficult in part because we parallel each other so much. It's almost narcissistic. Some of the things I could pick. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that one. Cause it's like mine. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to pick ones that would be more of a divergence, but also I just, I liked your take on Firestorm. I thought that was interesting. I liked the Jay Garrick book. I've actually dug the forever people. So you, you put the lie to me on that one. I think the Fury book is cool. <clears throat> I'm tough. I think I'm actually, I'm going to go with the forgotten villains though, because I don't know where that's going to go. And I'm, really curious to see who you dig up for that so it's either gonna be that or i'll get the forgotten heroes because i'd like to read some of those characters that you you mentioned in that one that entry yeah even if you don't like one story the next one's probably fun or you know yeah i went through a period for a few there years there where i was trying to buy pretty much every anthology left on the market which was like three um so i'm, I'm down for that for me i um well you'll see what the kind of reader i've become i would read the fire crotch book <laughs> <laughs> Not just because it sounds like, you know, like it's crazy uh, and, and fun and satirical, but I, I do enjoy those themes that have to do with cultural differences. And uh, I, I am part of a minority group living as a minority in a white Anglo majority. So there is some interest in that about having certain ancestries. And then so I, I like that whole concept. You know, if you're going to throw a book called Fire Crotch at me, that's I'm going to have to buy that one. <laughs> Simple as that. Okay, well, dear listeners, it's time to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? If you like this content, also think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And I hope you had fun, Frank. Are you now going to go, like you're doing this issue twice? Yes, absolutely. That was always the plan. It's part of why I wanted to be so divorced from the, the comments. But I actually still have to finish up the comic game from the last issue. So I'm going to have to do like some retro solicitations or stuff somewhere down the line to get caught up because I invested so much in the actual episode, probably to the chagrin of your audience since it ran so long and I was going on for so long. So apologies to them. I can't help it. My brain broke. I guess it's my fault, but um, you, I mean, you were already on the way, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Where can people uh, find your podcast? Let's pimp your projects. World Fine Podcasts. There isn't anything else out there called World Fine Podcasts. If you hit our WordPress page, uh, there's a menu of all the different shows that we have. Most of them have a lot of potty talk. I'm the really bad liberal, but we do have a uh, conservative in the group. So we do have 
have a little bit of a balance there. So if you find me deeply tedious and you want somebody to check me, that is an option. All right. Well, thanks for trying the experiment with me in this particular format. <laughs> and uh, until next time, who's editing? We, we are. And one of the adolescent issues that I remembered from my life was adults looking over my shoulder and telling me what I should be doing when I knew perfectly well how to do things. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool, you know, if, if in this fusion, you know, we end up with the adult hanging over his shoulder, telling him what to do. And for the reader, you know, who kind of has to deal with this in his own life, you know, or her own life.